The reality is you had good leaders who engaged and inspired, and you had bad leaders who, you know, read you the SOG or SOP and told you, you know, the tasks that needed to be done. And I can unequivocally state that the people that led Walt Disney World longer are the ones who had the relational side of it, the relational dynamic of it. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? Well, if I might share, I am fantastic. A lot of buildup there. <laughs> a lot of buildup, a lot of buildup. Hey, I have a question for you. Oh, okay. What is something that you like to do completely outside of what you do for work? What is something I like to do that is completely outside what I do for work? I'm going to give you the, the soft, cheesy answer, and it's spend time with my son, Jacob. That is not a cheesy answer at all. Although it could relate to cheese on a stick, but we won't go there. Which he uh, hasn't had yet. He needs to have one soon. <laughs> he might be a little young for it. But yeah. Right, right, right. So here's the kind of the second part of the question. That's something you like to do outside of, completely outside of, of what you do for work. But are there lessons or things that you can take away from your experiences with Jacob that you can actually apply to work? It is funny you say that because I was thinking of the flip side of this question in our interview today of thinking all of this amazing leadership life like uh, and well leadership advice and life lessons that I thought oh I could apply that directly to parenting as well. So but to to answer your question yes I think that I think they go they go back and forth in terms of building relationships with with other people, those who you might have influence over in the interest of, well, in, in some ways, it's in the interest of, of sustaining the business and having the business uh, goals achieved, or in the case of, of my example, in uh, in the, the goals of, of the family, the goals of, of everything we're, we're doing at home. So yeah, I think that they can, they can go back and forth pretty easily. All right. So you're able to connect some dots between the relationship that obviously you're building with your son every day uh, and what you're able to do in the uh, in the work that you do. And the reason I bring this up is because our guest today, Jim, Jim McPhee, he connects a lot of dots, right? He talks a lot about things that may not seem like they're related to the theme park world, but he relates them to life. He relates them to navigating life and the way that he connects the dots between all those different experiences and then extrapolates a lesson from it. I found really, really fascinating. So Jim McPhee uh, retired in 2021, but prior to that, he was the chief operating officer and senior vice president 
of a little place called Walt Disney World. And he was with Walt Disney World for 43 years. So started out as a at driving boats on Bay Lake when he was in his early 20s, stayed with the company, moved up, was part of so many unbelievable projects. I mean, not unbelievable because we believe them. We know that they happen, but, but magnificent <laughs> projects uh, within the company, within the organization, uh, that we get to we we get to hear unbelievable stories uh and fantastic lessons along the way uh he was he was part of the team that put together the next generation project which introduced my magic plus and the magic bands and the way that people now know today of buying tickets and going into the parks that also is their hotel room key and their credit card and integrating that entire guest experience Matt, my brain was on fire during this interview. I took so many notes. I so much of his 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 history and his background was really exciting from a business side, and then just so much of what he said from uh, from a leadership and relationship guidance part of it just resonated so much. And uh, and I, I think it just it just really hit home. It really resonated with me as well. And I have to say that so many of the things that he brought up as his philosophies, his beliefs, his practices really do align with a lot of things that you and I talk about. So I think it's great validation uh, for some of the things that you and I talk about, because here's someone who has, you know, many more years of experience in a large, large corporation. Like you said, he's done so many different things and he's found that some of the things that we talk about and we feel are important were also important from, from his learnings and his experience. One of the things he talks about really a lot is building relationships. And, you know, he kind of relates it to pushing a wet noodle in that when you're trying to get something done and you don't have the relationship built up, you're really, you're kind of working against yourself, which is kind of that that metaphor of pushing a wet noodle. Um, so it's really interesting to hear him talk about how you got to build a relationship first, even before you think you need it, then that relationship will come to fruition when the when the uh, when the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. And with all of that, after his 43 years at Disney and retiring in 2021, he was recognized with his name on a window on Main Street, USA, which, uh, if you don't know, is just one of the biggest honors that you can get by being at Walt Disney World and being part of the Walt Disney Company. Which is so cool. So next time I'm there, I'm going to look for it for sure. For sure. Yes. Um, he also talked a lot about emotional and relationship intelligence and or relational intelligence and how that really can shape what a leader does and how a leader can be perceived. So I think it's time for us to stop talking. It's been 43 years since, you know, we started talking about this. So let's get to this interview with Jim. Let's navigate this great interview. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. We are so excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm equally, if not more excited to be here. I've heard a lot about what you all are doing, not just for the industry at large, but for the individuals within the industry. And it's an exciting opportunity to join you. Thanks for the time today. Well, thank you. Excellent. We appreciate that. Uh, well, I feel like we've got a lot of ground to cover here in this interview, but to kick this off, can you just give us a, a brief overview? Tell us a, a little bit about your career background. Sure. I'll, I'll do some skimming uh, along the way and we can go deeper wherever you, you would like. Uh, so hard to believe I joined the company um, you know, a long time ago, about 45, 46 years ago. 
uh, I was uh, grew up in the Orange Beach area. Um, I went to high school over there and worked a lot of summer jobs in a variety of different areas under the hospitality banner. Uh, I chose Florida State as my destination for post high school uh, education. Um, had a great couple of years there, but to be honest, I you know hadn't really found my way quite yet as to what I was going to do. And so I told my mom, asked my mom and dad. I never tell my mom and dad anything, but I asked my mom and dad. Yeah, you know, I might want to take a break. And my dad said, yeah, you can take a break, but you're going to have to go to work. Why don't you check out that place called Disney? So I drove over from uh, Ormond Beach, uh, which is about an hour and 20 minutes uh, from Orlando, from the Disney part of Orlando, walked into the casting trailer. You know, at that time, there was one theme park, a couple of hotels and a campground. And I got signed up for a summer job and it was the perfect summer job. Uh I was driving boats on Bay Lake in the Seven Seas Lagoon. Um, so obviously that began the start of a, of a 43 year career, but it was Nirvana for me because I grew up on the water surfing and skiing and you know diving and on sailing and all of that stuff. So to to think I was getting paid a whopping $3.10 an hour uh, to, to drive boats for a living was uh, was pretty, pretty darn cool. Um, you know, little did I know at the time that uh, I was entering this era of growth for Disney, whether it was the soon to come Epcot, just a few years after I joined or studios, you know, uh, seven or eight years right behind that. Um, and then of course, Disney's Animal Kingdom in 1998. Um, I spent a couple years in California with the opening of Disney's California Adventure. But you know, I was, it was a wonderful career. Um, I can honestly say I, you know, worked from the bottom to about as high as I, higher than I thought, yet higher, as high as I wanted to. Uh, and I had a chance to work in mostly the theme parks uh, side of the business. Um, I worked in all the parks here at Walt Disney World, the California reference I made earlier. And, um, you know, within that uh, became a period of growth for me as well. You know, I was very fortunate to work for a variety of incredible leaders who were inspirational for me and uh, sort of mentoring me along the way. And you know, it was kind of a rapid cycle, boom, Epcot opens, boom, Studios opens, boom, you know, Animal Kingdom opens. Uh, it was a lot uh, in a 43-year in a, in a period for me, probably one of the biggest, you know, areas of um, learning and experience growth for me was uh, in the uh, My Magic Plus uh, inception with what we called internally the next generation experience. I was running Epcot at the time, was vice president of Epcot. And Meg Crofton, the president of Walt Disney World at the time, asked me if I would consider going on this special assignment, you know, which is always a little uh, fear invoking uh, when they talk about special assignments. But I said, sure, as long as I can keep one foot on Epcot and take on this assignment, I'd, I'd be good. I'm not sure I did a good service to my team, but for the next year, I managed to do about 75% of the next generation experience. And that was really cool. I mean, that was a stretch for me. I saw different levels of the organization beyond parks and resorts. I saw, you know, the ability to bring in and infuse, um, you know, consumer trends, whether it's personalization, customization, simplification, blah, blah, blah. And so we launched that. It was bumpy launch as any technology project is, but that kind of became the gateway. I think I was uh, put in the position of senior vice president for the parks for a few years from 2011 or 12 to about 2016, 17, and then I was appointed the chief operating officer for Walt Disney World. So I had all of the parks, resorts, and the people who were obviously doing all the hard work uh, reporting to me for probably my last five-year run. Um, I led the closure for COVID with the governor and the and the and the advisory board here in Central Florida. 
and then of course the reopening uh and so at the end of the reopening i kind of said wow i don't know what else there is to do feels like everything here might be getting back on the hamster wheel and uh and, and running away at it so i decided with my my kids anna and valentine graduating high school i decided to retire in april of uh 2001 shared it with my leader jeff folly uh and about a year earlier and we announced it in December. So haven't looked back, certainly miss the people. I don't miss a lot of the work, uh, but uh, you know, I'm enjoying this life after in a pretty extraordinary way. That's incredible. I just, I just, you know, think about your career and for how many people you've had so many, you've had so many people's dream jobs, you know, running parks and, you know, being part of that next gen experience. Um, but I want to go back to your dream job of, of driving that boat on Bay Lake. And I'm curious throughout your entire career, you probably have lessons that you took from that very first job that you brought with you through throughout your entire career. What were some of those lessons or some of those things that, you know, you learned during that time that you're able to take with you throughout your career? Well, watercraft, I was in the watercraft department and I was driving. I don't know if you can, it's probably blurry, but there's a picture right there of the, my first boat, the Voyager, that I ever drove, a 36-foot launch. And again, having grown up in the water, on the water, it was like, wow, this is really cool. I do believe, maybe for another podcast, there are extraordinary lessons in sailing in particular, but in, in, in boating, sailing in particular, and leadership, because it's, you know, very m- many contrarian points of view on fastest path to travel, you know, the, the dynamic that everything has to work together to create forward momentum, you know, all, all of those things. But watercraft was really cool because, again, there was only one park and a couple of hotels and a, and a campground. And so watercraft, part of transportation, gave me a pretty big and broad overview of the entire property, you know, as opposed to running a ride or working in a food and beverage location or merchandise or whatever. And so uh, I had several experiences in transportation. You know, it's a hard job. Well, watercraft wasn't that hard, although it is the coldest place at Walt Disney World on a on a cold winter day. Uh, if you're on a launch, you know, going against that wind. But um, but you know, it, it taught me a lot about navigation of life, um, as 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 much of a pun as that is. And what I loved about watercraft for me, it was the most important thing for me to experience initially coming into Disney it was a community. And there, most of these folks were, you know, school teachers working a summer weekend job, or they're in high school working a summer weekend job. I mean, certainly there were plenty of full-time people, but this was a, a fraternity of sorts of some really cool people. Made me feel very welcome into the organization. And I still, I mean, there's watercraft reunions that still happen here um, with some of the cronies that I worked with. But I think so. Watercraft gave a great sense of community. It gave a great sense of an overview of what this property is on scale, and it's real world stuff. I mean, you know, when you're whether you're driving trams or monorails or boats, you know, you're you got people's lives in your hands. And I enjoyed it. You know, to be honest, it was a you're kind of out there on your own, so you're not you know always having somebody looking over your shoulder. You have a little bit of freedom uh, to be able to navigate that. But I think my lesson learned mostly was the sense of community and the you know the connecting of the dots which obviously many modes of transportation do on the scale of Walt Disney World at that time and now of course you fast forward now it's like 5x you know in terms of size and scope but yeah that was a pretty great start to a, a really great career 
So Jim, I'm, I'm curious as well, uh, kind of uh, unpacking your your career journey and the the stories that uh, you just told us. Uh, your time working on the Next Gen and Magic Plus project, you said that it was a bumpy project as any tech project is, and I'm thinking of parallels to being being a boat captain, navigating, you said navigating life, navigating the bumps on the water. So maybe this is a a segue, a tacky a tacky transition perhaps, but navigating those bumps of uh, of this a groundbreaking tech project. I, I remember during the time when that was going on, it seemed like the, the whole world was looking at it and saying, this is, you know, this is going to be transformative. This is going to be an absolute game changer. And 100% it, it was. Um, and, and like you said, there were, there were some bumps with it too. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like being really inside that project? Yeah. You know, first of all, a couple of things, I mean, a ton of learnings, uh, much of what I, which I wrote about, which we can talk about later, but um, you know, I have this, uh, I've, in hindsight, and remember, I have the benefit of 65 years on this planet and hindsight, you know, to be able to look back and, and cherry pick some of the real tangible learnings that I had along the way. So I was, I didn't have this wisdom when I was your age or, you know, when I was 21 years old, starting to drive boats. Um, the next generation experience, you know, we knew we, I've, I've always been a consumer centric and cast member centric leader. I believe obviously the PNL is important. For the business, but I believe all of our decisions at Disney, when done well, are made through the lens of cast impacts, guest impacts, and and business impacts. And you, we could sit here all over the rest of the call and try and name off projects or programs that were implemented that hit on all those cylinders, cast guest business, or didn't, you know. And so I've always had the lens of, you know, of this experience that you know we had as being incredibly magical. But at the same time, the times and as Walt said, times and conditions change so rapidly, you got to stay focused on the future. And we were sensing an erosion in our guest satisfaction scores. And it was becoming pretty apparent that although we'd spent a lot of time in, some, in previous years trying to really address that, it was an uphill battle. And as we unpacked it all, you know, many departments had tried and not succeeded. Um, and I'm not a big believer of like, the department's solo responsibility to take an initiative or a program or a transformation like this and take it to the next level. It's got to be a team effort. And I'm also a big believer that I already got a full-time job. If you ask me to take on something like that and do my full-time job, I'm going to do both poorly or poorer than, you know, than if I had the responsibility. So I have to give Meg Crofton, who is the president of Walt Disney World at the time, first female president, and the leadership team a lot of props because they recognized that we had a, a pretty significant you know, erosion in our guest satisfaction. We also had become, um, in a variety of ways, ways, very complex and very transactional. And we really had woven in any personalization, customization, or even simplification into, the, I got all the shun words in there, but, you know, into the, into the mix. And so we were, we were losing ground on a magical experience because consumer expectations were changing pretty dramatically. And, and with credit to Jay Rizzullo, Maycroft, and, and the leadership team at the very highest levels of the DPEP organization, Disney Parks Experiences and Products, they recognized the problem, um, but they knew that if they approached it the same old way, which is give it to Mikey, you know, he'll fix it, um, it wouldn't go anywhere. And so to their credit, they, they formed a group of five individuals. I was one of the five representing operations, but we had a business development uh, person, we had a technology person, we had, and we had two Imagineers, and the five of us were given a charter statement. And the charter statement was one, two pages max, 
And the, the highlight of it was um, go out into the fabric of the experience and try and find, you know, trying to eradicate barriers, friction points, lines, and hassles throughout the consumer experience. And eradicate them, or if you can't, then figure out how to simplify them along the way. Now, that sounds very simple in terms of the wording, but it's massive in terms of the scale of Walt Disney World. And of course we had latent 20 year old technology platforms to have to think about building off of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the five of us left our day jobs. Um, we were kind of a self-led group. Uh, none of us really knew each other very well uh, before, but we literally traveled. The California guys came here, the Florida people came, went there, back and forth, back and forth every week. And we had eight weeks to go back to the board and present what we would call the next generation experience. And it began with a very simple look in the mirror for ourselves, which uh, which was fascinating. We called it the paradigm shift. Who are we today and who do we wanna to be tomorrow? Today we're complex and transactional. Tomorrow we wanna to be simple and seamless. Today we're mass anonymous. We don't really know anybody. Along, you could have come to the Grand Floridian for the 30th time and paying those kind of rates. We better know you after 10 times or five times, you know, but we didn't know them after 30 times. We wanted to be more, more simple, uh, uh, more personalized. We want, we want to let the guests navigate the experience. So customize, move from, you know, from that, from that complex and transactional place to, to simple and seamless. And so anyway, I'm, it's a wonderful board and I use it all the time, even now, almost 10, 15 years later, because it was it was it was a humbling and uh, and vulnerable experience to be able to say you're not that great at these pieces and parts. You can be, but it's going to take time. It's going to take attention. It's going to take money. So we pitched to the board. Um, you know, and I'll be honest with you, most of our challenge were more internal than external. There were some people who didn't think we should be spending a billion dollars on software. Uh, you could buy a lot of rides. Uh, not that many anymore, but you could buy a lot of rides for a billion bucks. But, um, um, you know, we needed to improve the base experience. And I'm I'm really happy with what we did. It's, it was bumpy because technology is just bumpy. Um, latent 20-year-old systems, as I mentioned earlier, you know, trying to get consumers to adopt to a different type of behavior. But in the end, when we got through the trough of, of challenges six months into it, we kind of broke out and it was one of the highest guest satisfaction steps we'd ever taken. It was, um, it drove a longer length of stay, which was really kind of the backbone of the financial proposition. And our guests told us, you know, um, that it made their experience better. They didn't have to carry around 15 different pieces of collateral between guide maps, theme park tickets, room keys, fast passes. You know, everything was on a single form factor called the magic band. And it was really cool. Um, uh, you know, companies changed a lot. Practices have changed a lot uh, since then with the, you know, post-COVID opening without fast pass and now into Genie. I'm not going to really go into that. I really enjoyed the fast pass. <laughs> Uh, dynamic. Um, I really think it was a differentiator for Disney. And, you know, at the same time, there's uh, a lot of challenges in the world today, including the business side of it. So they've done, you know, what they've done for what I think are the right reasons, but it was a bit, a bit of a step back to everything I just said for the last 10 minutes. Uh, but I, I don't want to go there. The point is, the company made a decision to be aggressive in this space and improve the experience. They dedicated a team to go do that instead of adding on to other people's day jobs. 
And by the way, we engaged the broader organization two years out, which is kind of unheard of because you've got confidentiality and all these things. But we wanted them to move from this, oh, I've heard about this thing called My Magic Plus to I own it. And if they own it, then, you know, it's gold from there. You know, Jim, one of the things you mentioned in there that I thought was fascinating is how you said some of those those challenges were more internal than external. And some people said, hey, we can we can buy a lot of rides for that amount of money instead of buying software. And so I'm curious if we can dive a little deeper into what did it take to get some of those people on board or you know, what was that process like to ensure that, that everybody was on the same page as you were moving forward? Yeah. Good, great question. And and I want to underscore this. It wouldn't have happened if there was, you know, if there was a lot of turmoil internally. It just frankly wouldn't have happened. And I do think it's why it hadn't happened, you know, at that time. But to answer your question, I think top box sponsorship is key. When the chairman of Parks and Resorts, Disney's Parks, it was Disney Parks and Resorts at the time, says we're going to do this. And it's sponsored at the highest level of the organization. And they demonstrate a very sincere interest in it, strong support of it then guess what? Everybody's going to get in line, you know, a lot faster than if it was Joe or Jane over in the XYZ department trying to push a wet noodle. I always, I did a lot of horizontal work in my life and it, I always referred to it as pushing a wet noodle because, you know, nobody has to really do anything, but they have to understand why they need to do things. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek's golden circle, uh, the how, the what, and the why. But, uh, uh, you know, we had to build consensus um, and we had to lead with clarity, unity and agility. And I heard those three words or I read those three words in this book called Strategic Speed. And a buddy of mine, Scott Reynolds, I'll always remember him because, you know, when, when I talk about clarity, it means where is the organization going? What's the destination that we're headed? And, you know, who's coming along on the ride? Um And this is what we're going to do along the way. Now, I'm very clear to very quickly follow behind that is. You cannot develop perfection as you march toward, toward transformation. You have to be, I always say, define your destination and go and be nimble and agile along the way. And as long as your beacon is always out there in front of you, you might not be able to walk the path that you walk, thought you were going to walk. But as long as you're maintaining forward momentum and working toward improving whatever you're trying to experience, it's great. The clarity was key established clearly by the top box of the organization broadly and sponsorship and protection. <laughs> um, because, you know, many of us weren't on what, what I would call the Walt Disney World Steering Committee. We weren't sitting there every week. You know, we were kind of the next rung down, still relatively senior in the organization, but the next rung down. And so people's cheese was being moved, you know. People who had departments that did things like collect data on this or measure that probably weren't going to have to do that as much. And I think human nature and personality starts to get protective when, um, you know, when their turf is, is threatened. It's just part of a natural evolution of change. I love the definition of, I love talking about two things, experience and transformation. Experience is not what people do, but how they feel while they're doing that. Now, I know that sounds really obvious, but I could say, hey, I went to Disney, I did eight rides. Wow, that's really cool. You did eight rides. But if I did teacups or Dumbo, you know, the entire eight rides, that's not going to be that great. I mean, I'm not going to feel that great. But if I had great experiences with the cast members that, I, that were there, which is always our goal, and I had a great experience, you know, in the air development, I had a great experience on the ride. That's how I felt. I felt good. And then transformation. I love the definition of transformation. It's a process of profound and radical change 
that reorient a company, its culture, its people, and its processes to an entirely different level of effectiveness. It's not a project or it's not a flavor of the month or a program. It is a 180. And it really, what it did internally was broke down a lot of walls. Um, it really forced connectivity across the entire horizontal view of the site. And so that is gold in terms of outcomes that may have not necessarily been intended, but you really separated the strong from the weak. I hate to say it in such a granular way, but you know, there are people who recognize the ability to do this and what it would bring to bear. And some people also look at it as like more work and they don't want to do more work. So when you're dealing with 75,000 people at Walt Disney World alone, that's a lot of personalities to manage, you know, across a lot of different levels. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered your question directly, but it was about clarity, driving for unity, everybody to believe in it, or at least understand it if they didn't fully believe in it. And then, you know, you'll move faster in an agility kind of way if you knock out those things. I forgot my analogy. Liberty Bell. Think about the Liberty Bell. At the very top is a little crack. And then when you come down into the bell, it's a fissure, you know, it's a gaping opening. Apply that to organizations for clarity and lack of clarity. If everybody's clear by the top boxes of the organization on the direction we're headed, then it's probably not going to be as big a fissure because it's clear where we're going. And so I wanted to avoid that that fissure uh, at the bottom of the bell. And I, I, I roll by collaboration. I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, I, relationships are humongous to me in my life, whether at work or at play. If you don't have great relationships between departments, between leaders of departments, then you got a really tough battle ahead. So I worked hard to build consensus and to be open to and vulnerable by the feedback that we received of it along the way as well. So you talk about relationships, and I know that's that's something that uh, that you're very passionate about. And the the question that we'd love to ask you is, what matters more? leadership or relationships? That's a really, 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 really deep question. <laughs> Let me tell you how I think about um, leadership. Uh, I think there's two dynamics at play with leadership and it's gonna sound simple, but it's not. The first dynamic is kind of the price of admission. And I would call that technical competencies. And technically, the definition of, I'm a big dictionary dude, by the way, I, I like to go in and just look at definitions of words because it, it, I don't know what it does. I used to draw my team crazy, but the definition of technical competence is the knowledge and ability required to apply specific technical principles and information to the performing a job, to performing a job function or role. That's the price of admission. You got to know what you're doing if you're assigned to a job or a task or something like that. And you have to have the technical wherewithal underneath technical competency are two buckets that I talk about a lot, which is really mastery and command and systems and critical thinking. Mastery and command is kind of the knowledge and skills that allow you to understand how to use uh, something very well. So you have full mastery of whatever you're responsible for. And then you have the command that you have to earn to be able to march the team toward doing that. And then systems and critical thinking is really more using logic, applying an understanding of logic to determine truths uh deceptions and misunderstandings those are you know lofty definitions but i don't really ever talk about that stuff to be honest with you because that stuff you got to do it i mean you've got you have to know what you are responsible for in your daily tasks you should know what it how it relates to the broader consumer experience of your goods 
but you have to do that. I think where leaders differentiate them is a much more deeper subject, and I would call it emotional and relational intelligence. And the idea of emotions is really the ability to perceive, understand, and manage and handle other people's points of view, other people's opinions, other people's emotions, you know, along the way. Relational is more our ability as humans to connect and establish trust with one another. I personally believe in life, relationships are the most important thing that we could be focusing on. I will go to my grave saying that. Um, it's been my fuel. Uh, it's how I roll. It's how I, you know, I hope that I'm raising my children with. It's how I hope I'm, you know, engaging in the community with. It's about getting to know people at a granular level when you don't need them to go climb a mountain or you don't need them to go put a fire, a fire out, but to invest in them on a personal level. And then, you know, this is a, a shameless plug for my book, <laughs> but I mentioned mastering command systems and critical thinking over here on the technical side, over here on the relationship side. And I think you said it, Matt, it's about engaging, inspiring, and leading. Whether, whether you are being engaged or engaging, whether you are inspired being inspired or inspiring or it's about whether you're leading or being led you know i think that people who will go to the end of the earth for leaders do so because of the return on the investment they feel they want to give for what's been invested in them i mean i used to always say to a leader at disney and operations i need you yes to run your business the technical side of it but i need you to go into the softest side of your heart and engage, inspire, and lead these people that work for you who are making, probably living paycheck to paycheck, and they're here because they believe in our company. You need to keep that pilot light lit, and you need to start a fire with it. Because if we expect them to engage our guests, we as leaders better engage our cast members to demonstrate the values to them of, of the benefit of doing so. So, you know, um, you know, one second, I, I got to rambling there, but I think that um, I do believe relationships are the most important thing, are the most important things in life. And I think in a leadership role, leadership's hugely important. My father led me, my mother led me, you know, my wife leads me, uh, my family leads me. And um, it's important too, but that leadership wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the relationships, you know, that we have, um, you know, amongst ourselves. Now, there are different industries that require different levels of relationship or engaging, inspiring, and leading. There's no question if you're working in a laboratory trying to cure cancer, probably not going to be engaging and inspiring and leading too much, but you are saving the world. But if you're out in the theme park business, which is the industry you all represent so well, you better be doing that and you better be doing that a lot more because it's not about anybody's degree, whether it's a master's, four-year master's, PhD, or high school. doesn't matter. You know, that to me is technical competency that gets you in the door. What differentiates a person is their ability to relate to multiple people on multiple levels with a variety of different, you know, authentically, by the way, really authentically with humility and vulnerability in mind to be able to, you know, establish themselves. And I never really wanted to meet somebody for the first time when I was ringing the fire bell saying, we got to go we got to go deal with this thing. I wanted, I invested in people so that when I ran that bill, I didn't have to worry about the relationship side. It was all, let's get to action because the time off the fire was the time to inspire. Hey, see what I did there? Um, uh, anyway, that's my, I'm really passionate about it in case you can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> that relationships are huge. 
Well, and this question may lead to another plug for your book, which is totally fine because I'm super <laughs> excited to read it myself. But, um, you know, what what comes to mind for me is all those things you're talking about are things that, you know, may come somewhat naturally to some people that may not come naturally to others. So the question, you know, are leaders born or made? And where's the responsibility lie, you know, to get that technical competence to understand how to be vulnerable? Is that come from their experience? Does that come from, you know, a mentor? Is it a combination of all those things? So maybe the question is just about developing leaders into that kind of ideal situation that you're talking about, um, because not everybody probably has all of those skills coming into it, certainly at various levels within an organization. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, you, you kind of answered the question with your four, three or four examples uh, along the way there, but I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's a kind of a potpourri of it all that kind of tie into that. You know, what I wanted to do when I retired was to maybe consult a little bit, which I did. It was okay. I did it for a year and I, it just kind of was a nice wean off of, you know, working full time. I did it part time. But what I've been doing still and love to do is mentor. And my goal in life is to find someone half my age and be able to impart wisdom that I've learned along the way into their heads now, whether they action on it now, it's a, it's an earworm for them, you know, to be able to tap back into. And in fact, I um I'm, I have a few folks that I'm I'm doing that with, and people did it for me. You know, the word mentor didn't exist when I was growing up, but the reality is you had good leaders who engaged and inspired, and you had bad leaders who you know read you the SOG or SOP and told you you know the task that needed to be done. And I can unequivocally state that the people that led Walt Disney World longer are the ones who had the relational side of it, the relational dynamic of it. Now, everybody can engage. Not everybody can inspire and not everybody can lead, can lead. So you, there's a calling out that happens with people that goes deep, in my opinion, deep into their innate DNA as to what is leadership all about, you know? And some people just don't have it, you know? And a lot more do, uh, but some people don't. And they should... I don't believe in people trying to do something that they have never, that they can't do um, or don't have the capability of that. I almost said I've never done. I, I do believe in doing that, but I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe everybody automatically gets a lead card when they step from, you know, point A to point B to point C to point D. It's not, none of that makes you a leader might make you a manager. You've heard the edge of comparisons, of managers and leaders. You know, there's a million examples of that, but to lead is, um, I actually had this, I actually had, I mean, to lead, the definition of lead is to hold one by the hand and move them forward down a path. I know that sounds so silly. Nobody holds anybody by the hand. It's an HR flag on the play these days. But um, but to hold them by the hand is, is a sign of, you know, deep personal engagement, you know, to be able to get them to come along the way. Now, I think I did it well throughout all of my career. I didn't do it great in my early stages of my career because I also believe there's a reason why they call work work and there's a reason why they call jobs jobs. It's a task, but it's a third of my life. You know, if I sleep one third of my life, play one third of my life and work one third of my life, why wouldn't I want to have fun in the work job bucket? one third of my life. And so I always went in and had responsible fun. 
in an environment to create an aura <clears throat> or an environment that people wanted to be a part of, whether they were doing a task or not. They were part of that culture and part of that fabric. Jim, this has been I, such a fascinating conversation, and we we still have a few minutes left here. But uh, I, I just want to stress just how much how, how much this is is resonating with me, and how much I appreciate you know everything. Even Matt, the question that you asked, I'm so glad you asked that. I was thinking the exact same thing as far as wow. you know, thinking back to that question of you know, are, are leaders made or born, and and being able to uh, being able to kind of get to that level of engaging and inspiring and and leading. And I was even thinking back to just my early leadership days. And not that I didn't have mentors, not that I didn't have people supporting me because I, I did, but everything that you've shared, I don't think I had that that mindset. And I think that that reflected very much in my early leadership, because I, I think I was more excited about being a manager and overseeing right. than I was perhaps about truly engaging and inspiring, you know, those who, who I was leading. So yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I, you know, and as I said earlier, this I wish I had the manual on all this, you know, when I was started driving boats and I could read up on it. But I didn't read a lot of books, you know, when I was when I was growing up. There is a one book that I do enjoy very, very much and I reference quite often. It's Jim Collins's Good to Great book. And if you ask me, which may be one of your next questions is like, you know, name a couple um, traits or, you know, values that a great leader has, I firmly believe it's about vulnerability and humility. And, you know, vulnerability is the ability to keep your mind open to others' points of view, to recognize what you're really great at and what you're not, and surround yourself in the category of what you're not great at. Surround yourself with people who are great at that, because you don't have to master everything. But this notion of humility and vulnerability is, is a huge, huge, huge to me. But anyway, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, talks about humility. You know, it's in my book. I, I worked, I had a situation a couple of decades ago where I worked for two different leaders, Meg Crofton, I'm not going to name them, President of Walt Disney World, just name one, <clears throat> President of Walt Disney World and another person. <clears throat> Meg is the poster child for Engage, Inspire, Lead. She is humble, vulnerable, yet very driven, blah, blah, blah. This other individual was the opposite of Meg. Somewhat self-centered, very much focused on their self-personal growth, you know, kind of played the game of team nods and or team engagement, but it was transactional. It was like, yeah, I felt like grease, you know, get it off my hands. And but it was, but both of them were very senior leaders in the organization. And I had to, it broke me down a little bit because I had to go study what is the disconnect that I'm having with this individual. And I realized they weren't humble, they had no humility. And I actually studied the Bible. I studied, you know, the dictionary definition. I, I did a variety of things. And I think in humility, Jim Collins calls humility the top characteristic of the top 2% of C-suite leaders that run these big businesses. And, you know, humble doesn't mean like easy to beat on or um, pick on or whatever. It's humble is appreciating the values of those around you more than your own. And anyway. I can go off on a big on a big tangent here, but um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think I wish I would have known this a long time ago. Well, yeah, and that was one of the the questions that we were going to ask about, you know, kind of advice for you know leaders that are up and coming in the theme park industry or in the attractions industry in general, and certainly being vulnerable, being humble uh, are, are certainly two of those traits. 
What else would you put in that category? You know, if if you have someone that you're mentoring and saying these are the things you need to work on, uh, what are those things that you would uh, you would advise? Well, patience is the first one because a lot of you know my children and using them as an example, they want to know what's next. They want to be in position with what ever the future may hold. And I have a firm belief that if you look too far forward, you're going to miss exactly the ground you're stepping on right now and the beauty that's around you at any given time. And I also have a mindset that says, what's the hurry? What I tell everybody is, you know, everything that we do in life, but in particular in the workplace, whether it's the first day of your first job, is a brick. And this brick is a set of bricks, one of a set of bricks that builds this foundation for who you will be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. And I was blessed at Disney to, you know, looked, I worked in a almost every single, I wouldn't say every single job you can, but every, well, many different departments, foods, merchandise, convention sales, transportation, theme parks, blah, blah, entertainment, you know, a lot of every, every line of business I had experience in. Well, guess what? When I get to be in charge of the parks, or I get to be in charge of a park, or if I get to be the COO of Walt Disney World as I ended my career, I have this massive foundation that has fueled me with in real-time intelligence on what it takes to get jobs done. So it would be very hard for people to pull the wool over my eyes about something that could or, or could not be done. If I had not had those experiences, I guarantee you I wouldn't be as effective as a leader as I was when I climbed higher into the organization because it gave me, I love these four words and I never could figure out those five, four words. I never could figure out the acronym spelling correctly. But I believe that, I used to run an organization that was newly formed, it was, I'm not gonna go into it, but newly formed organization, there was a bunch of reorgs going on. It happened to be a place where not the best talent landed in. And I came back from California and I kind of sat in that as a director, I sat as an entry-level executive in, in that organization. We're like, man, this is a little messed up because people don't come to us for help or come to us support, nor are we out there. This is one of those horizontal jobs I'm talking about, nor are we out there giving that. And I realized, because eventually I got promoted to lead that job about a year after I got back from California to lead that organization. And I did a little bit of a self-assessment. I said, man, we're missing some things here. And the four words that kept coming to me was relationships, influence, knowledge, and credibility. I called it Rick spelled wrong. You got to kind of start with the relationships, but the other one can go where they want to go. But relationships, influence, knowledge, and credibility. You got to build relationships when you're walking in the hallway. I, I mentioned in my book, you know, I, I remember taking a rep card. It was back in the Blackberry days, right? And it was novel, right? We, now we have a device and we can read our email. So I'm going from my VP office through the main corridor that every single cast member cruises down at Epcot to go get on the bus to go to the backstage areas of World Showcase or Future World. And I'm cruising to the bathroom with my head in my device. And I made, I did it too many times, but I did finally realize, what am I doing here? What kind of, a, they might not know who I am, maybe they do, I don't care, but I'm showing them that this device is more important than them when I should be putting that thing as far away as possible and saying, hello, how's your day? What's happening, you know, and and, and, what, and, 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 and what's going on? And I, I think we have every moment to engage and that would be the relationship side of it. The influence side, cause, 
how do you get, become a good influencer? By having a good relationship with somebody. Might not be your best buddy, but you've built a level of credibility. There's the other word, you know, in the Rick model that you've built credibility that you probably know what you're talking about and they're going to listen to you and you're going to listen to them. And then of course, knowledge. So relationship influence, knowledge and credibility in whatever order you want are extremely important. And I would say, think about that. You know, I used to wake up every day and say, who haven't I talked to in the last six weeks that I really need to talk to just in case a, hopefully I enjoy talking to them, but just in case I, I need them down the road. And I had a list of people that were, it was a relationship management list. It sounds silly. Nobody ever saw it, never pulled it out, never talked about it. But I knew I had to stay in touch with my FOS colleague. I knew I had to stay in touch with my, you know, finance colleague, my HR colleague. I knew that I needed to stay connected. And my peers, who, you know, were running the other parts of the business. Because we're our team. And the ability to be a team is through the relationship side of it, you know? So we are really starting to run low on time. And I feel like we could we could keep talking for hours if, if we wanted to. But I, I do have another question for you, though. And uh, when I was in college, I, I worked in attractions at the Magic Kingdom. And I remember going yeah. through traditions, day one orientation. And then once upon a time is now the Magic Kingdom specific orientation. And I remember the facilitator, when we got to the entrance of the Magic Kingdom and we're walking down Main Street, she pointed out the windows. And she said, in particular, take note of the names who are on the windows, because just like when you watch a movie, you see the credits at the end of it that show all the important people that came together to make this happen. That's what we see here on the windows. What's it like having your name on a window on Main Street? Oh, it's pretty awesome. I mean, you know, it's hard to even hard to even fathom um, how how incredible uh, that is. That's a little blurred out, but my window's over here. And our, our window happens to be um, uh, next to Meg Crofton's, who I mentioned earlier, you know, is, is one of my faves. But I don't know, is it backwards to you guys? Talent, education, and training. And it's a shared window with Phil, Trevor, myself, and Juan, who I know has been on your talks before. Um, I didn't see it coming. I honestly didn't think we were going to get a window. I didn't find out I was getting a window until um, my retirement Zoom, because it was COVID till my retirement Zoom party. And it was like, I was floored because I honestly hadn't thought about it. I don't really, I mean, say this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contradict myself in a minute. I don't really, I don't really care about material things like that. But when you get it, <laughs> it's really, really, really an honor. And it's really, really cool. In fact, I was, I didn't think I was getting one. And I figured somebody would ask me about it, you know, while I was in heading toward retirement, you're going to get a window. People did ask me about it. So I don't know. And I, I said, it's a tangible thing on a, a window on Main Street that I don't know that point oh 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 one percent of the guests actually see and pay attention to. But I did say to them, my window is really in my heart and my window is always open for you. And I actually had a line. That's pretty sad. I had a line to say, uh, if I didn't get a window, I still got a window for you, man. Um, but it's 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 touching. Um, you know, I spent 43 years, two thirds of my life at this company and did a lot of extraordinary things. I worked really hard, didn't do everything perfect. Um, you know, we made mistakes all the time, but we embraced learning from those mistakes. I think you guys were talking about fail fast earlier. You know, I do believe you should fail fast responsibly. <clears throat> um, responsibly fail. 
meaning you've done your homework best you can, and then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't think it's uh, ready, fire, aim, uh, but I do think there's a lot of prep. And if you fail, you fail. And guess what? You don't do that again, or new leader will come in 20 years from now and say, hey, I got a great idea. And you'll have to sit there and go, oh, yeah, we tried that. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm touched by the window, extremely touched by it. It's the most prestigious honor anybody in the business I grew up in could have. And I'm, you know, use my own words, I'm I'm humbled by that. Um, and I'm uh, I'm grateful for it, you know. Uh, I do get every, I do get notes every once in a while. Hey, I just saw your window. I said, great, somebody saw it. Uh, uh, but it's an honor, obviously, the highest honor I could even think of ever receiving for my service. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, and it certainly sounds like it's well deserved based on your experience and your contributions to uh, Disney. So, uh, Jim, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been a fascinating conversation. Uh, if people want to find out more about you or learn about getting your book, where would you send them? Um, well, first of all, um, I'm not. Uh, my book is actually located on Amazon. It's called Engage, Inspire, and Lead. Um, and I think the team here will put a link hopefully on the bottom of the distribution of it and you can grab that. It's about two thirds of my career, kind of lessons learned. The book is called Engage, Inspire, Lead, Riding the Ways of Life and Leadership from my 43-year career at the Walt Disney Company. Um, it is about life. There's not a castle on the cover of this. I don't believe in any of that. I believe in this. I believe in water. I believe in nature. I believe in energy. I'm not trying to get sappy here, but I want to write about myself, of which Disney was two-thirds of my life on it. I do have, toward the end, a section that I break down my principles and beliefs, all of which, probably no surprise, nicely fit under engage, inspire, and lead. And I, you know, I, I, I talk about many of these things all the time. As I said, I wasn't planning on writing a book when I retired. Several people said I should. I said, no, nah, I'm not that. I don't do that. But um, I'm glad I did. It was very cathartic. It was a wonderful bridge from the incredible career that I had to now this incredible next chapter of my life. And so it, I'm really, really glad that I did it. Uh, but it taught me more about life than it did about, well, I wrote it, so it didn't teach me much. But I, it taught me more about life and my life as much as or more than leadership, you know, because I think... I think people who think that they got to go read leadership books or work on their leadership often might be missing a step. I believe firmly that everybody needs to work on their relationships and their ability to engage and inspire and then ultimately lead. Because when you have engaged and you have inspired, you've got the credibility now to go lead. So, you know, I've said that ad nauseum up to this point. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we appreciate it. And we will absolutely put that in the show notes to make sure that uh, anyone who's listening is able to is able to get this. Um, Jim, once again, thank you so much. Uh, this was just such an amazing conversation. We really appreciate your time today. I, I learned so much. Uh, this is just so great. And for everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.